I'd love to have you all take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 11 with me this morning. So we find ourselves once again in this final section of the book, and I'm excited to open it up with you this morning. One of the things I love doing is getting together with people and playing games. And I really like creative games. I like those games, for instance, where you are given a word and you have to get people to guess it either by like acting it out or drawing it or maybe giving clues without saying certain things. I like those games, but I I noticed something in them, and you probably have too, that when playing them, it always seems like the words other people get are really easy. Like you'd know exactly what you do with those, but then you get your word and the pressure's on and suddenly it's like, I'm stumped. What am I going to do with this? You know, Daniel 11 kind of gave me that feeling. I'm stumped. What am I going to do with this? And and certainly, this is a difficult passage to preach. One um, uh, scholar from a previous generation said that because of Daniel 11's content, this is a passage that might be good for Bible study, but it cannot be preached. Well, thankfully, I disagree with this guy. We have a firm conviction here at Sunset Bible Church. All scriptures breathed out for God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and the training of righteousness. And this is one of the areas that I think is a huge benefit to our church. As Matt, as Matt said last week, um, as, as we go through and do expository preaching, meaning we preach through whole texts of the Bible, we come to passages that we might not choose to preach if it were up to us. I certainly would never say, I want to preach Daniel 11, and yet, I'm so thankful that I am. Now, I am thankful that I wasn't put on the spot and said, here's Daniel 11, tell us something about it, because I would have been stumped. Thankfully, unlike a game, I got to study. And in that study, can I just say, God is so gracious. He, he gave such great encouragement to me in this, and I walked away from Daniel 11 saying, man, I love this passage. And my hope for you today is you will walk away similarly after today and say, boy, I love that passage, and that you will find encouragement in it. That's my hope. And I think this is a good goal to ask God uh, to help us with this and pray about it. So let's go ahead and begin our sermon today with a word of prayer, and let's ask God for his help today, shall we? Uh, God, we are so thankful. I'm so thankful for a day to gather as your people and to pray and to to lift up our voices to worship you. And of course, those who are at home watching today, so thankful for them and their continued commitment to connect um, over that that live stream. And and God, now we are so thankful for this opportunity to to open your word and to come before you and say, God, teach us. And God, certainly we do come to a passage today. It is a difficult one in terms of preaching, but God, here, you still speak to us. And God, I would pray that today you would work through the words that I say, that you would, as we examine this passage of Scripture, that you would show us areas of our life, perhaps where we have unbelief, uh, perhaps where we have things that need to be cleaned up in our life. And God, we turn to you and ask for your help in seeing those things and in addressing them. So God, we pray this in the name of Jesus. And through the Spirit, amen. Well, wonderful. I trust that you have that, uh, those sermon notes there, some review there on those notes as well. We now find ourselves in the final half of Daniel, and we are in the final part of the final half. Daniel 10 through 12 uh, details this final prophecy that Daniel is given. Uh, last week, as Matt opened up 
uh, chapter 10, we saw Daniel's visited by this angel, and we were reminded there's this unseen spiritual world where our forces of good and evil are in conflict, and, and we need to remember that this unseen world exists. And, and in this, then, we come to Daniel chapter 11, and, and now we see the, the prophecy proper. Now, Daniel 11 is perhaps the most dense and detailed prophecy in the Bible. It spans generations of kings. Ultimately, it speaks of the end times. And it's very interesting because this is so detailed and so the prophecy is so accurate that many people have questioned its authenticity. Uh, Dr. Reynolds Showers says this. He says, because of the massive specific details that have been fulfilled so accurately, destructive critics have argued that this portion of Daniel could not have been written in Daniel's day, many years before the events described. They insist that this passage was written after events because no one could possibly foretell so much specific detail so accurately so far in advance. Well, we'll address this unbelief later, but I want to begin today and let you know my firm conviction is that Daniel 11 is not history written after the fact in the guise of prophecy, but it is in fact true prophecy supernaturally given to Daniel. Uh, Daniel recorded it in the 536 BC, and that we'll see it accurately predicts world history for the next 350 years after Daniel's life. And of course, because we're dealing with history today, um, this is going to be a challenge because there's so much that goes on in Daniel 11. Now, we could make the mistake of turning this into a history lecture, and I could go on for two hours easily on all the things that go on. That would be a mistake. It would also be a mistake for me just to brush over things because I want you to see just how accurately this prophecy that God gave Daniel is. And I think there's great encouragement in that. So I'm going to be talking about a lot of different names and whatnot today. So, so get ready, and let's go ahead and take a look at this. Now, Daniel 11 kind of splits up into five time periods. And the first one, in verses 2 through 4, deals with kind of the remaining of Persia's history and into Alexander the Great. Let's look at verse 2. It says, Now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. This fourth king, following Xerxes, or following Cyrus, was Xerxes I, and indeed he was great, and there were actually Persian kings after him. But he was the one who started invading Greek territories and would set up events that would lead to about a hundred years after his reign, uh, Greeks coming and conquering Persia. Uh, he was the one who stirs up all against Greece. And, and verse 3 then jumps forward about a hundred years, and as the result of this, this stirring up, Alexander the Great comes on the scene. Look at verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Now there's volumes written about Alexander the Great and his exploits and all these things. And yet what we see here, the Persian Empire in all its glory Alexander the Great were mere blips in God's eyes. Following the death of Alexander, this unfolds exactly as God foresaw it. Alexander's four generals divide his kingdom up. 
And Daniel's prophecy now shifts to two of those generals. They're going to establish kingdoms that are going to be in conflict. And Israel is going to be stuck between these two uh, warring nations uh, right in the middle for the next two centuries. So let's look at who these kingdoms are. Verses 5 through 19 give us details about them. Two of Alexander's generals, they set up this competing kingdom. For One is Ptolemy I. He rules from Egypt. He is the king of the south. And then there's Seleucus I. He rules from Syria. He's the king of the north. And this section is going to give us tremendous detail about not only their reigns, but their, the people who follow them. And, you know, history can get kind of confusing with all the names. I'm just going to say up front that this section is going to deal with a lot of people who kind of share the same name. So in Egypt, everybody's named Ptolemy, all the kings. So this section's going to deal with Ptolemy I all the way through Ptolemy the sixth. Okay, six Ptolemies, got it? Now, Syria north is a little bit more confusing. They kind of go back and forth between two names, Seleucus and Antiochus. So this section's going to deal with Antiochus 1 through 3 and Seleucus 1 through 3. Don't you love history? Um, man, get some new names, but this is what they did. So here we go. Let's take a look at some of these aspects. I'm not going to read all this, but I'm going to highlight key parts. So verse 5, then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and the authority shall be a great authority. After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up in her attendance, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. Now, Initially, um, uh, Ptolemy and Seleucus joined forces to fight one of Alexander's other generals. But then, as they establish their kingdoms, they enter into conflict, and the conflict is over who owns the Syria-Palestine area. Who owns Israel? Isn't that amazing? Conflict over who owns Israel? Who would have thought? And so here we go. The, both kings uh, are eventually replaced by their sons. So uh, get rid of Ptolemy the first and Seleucus the first. Now we have Ptolemy the second and Antiochus the second. And they try to broker some peace. Ptolemy the second sends his daughter, uh, a lady named Bernice, uh, to marry Antiochus the second. Problem: Antiochus the second's already married, and, and part of the agreement is uh, Antiochus, you got to get rid of your wife. Uh, he was married to a lady named Laodice, um, and this does not go over well with her. Uh, let's just say Antiochus II, he, he does marry Bernice, they have a kid, and then eventually Antiochus II, he decides, yeah, you know, I like Laodice, I'm going to reconcile with her, and he does. Well, she hasn't forgotten. She promptly, after reconciliation, gets her revenge. She poisons Bernice, she poisons Antiochus, she poisons their son, she poisons a bunch of people. And takes over power. And eventually, uh, the kingdom falls to her son, um, who is Seleucus II. Okay? Well, during this time now, uh, Bernice's brother has become the king in Egypt. This is Ptolemy III. Guess how Ptolemy III feels about his sister being poisoned? Not too good, right? 
So this whole marriage that was supposed to create peace is now creating further conflict. So is your head spinning? Do we have all these names? So now we have Ptolemy III and Seleucus II, and they're fighting, and, and they're going to be fighting back and forth. Now, I won't go into detail, but verses 7 through 11 tell with incredible accuracy this ongoing conflict between all these people, and it takes us all the way up to the next successors, Ptolemy IV and Antiochus III, or Antiochus the Great. Now, verses 12 through 15 really shift to focusing on Antiochus III, the king of the north. And he eventually comes in and finally takes over. He kind of dominates Egypt. And part of this is because Ptolemy IV dies, leaving Ptolemy V in charge. Ptolemy V is just a little child. He's six years old. Antiochus III is basically saying, six-year-old king, This is a great time to invade Egypt, and he does so by raising up a big army of all sorts of allies. Now, some of the allies are Jewish, and it's very interesting. There's a number of Jewish people who are not happy with Egypt's influence in Israel, and so they think, you know what? We're going to side with Syria. This will go better for us. And I want to slow down here because I want to draw your attention to verse 14. And notice what this speaks of people 300 years after Daniel writes this prophecy. Verse 14 says, In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people, that's Daniel's own people, the Jewish people, they shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. You know, it's never a good idea to try to fulfill prophecy yourself. It's far too easy to look at prophecy and see current events of the day as fulfillment of prophecy and think that your generation is the one that prophecy is speaking about. And for whatever reason, they didn't see that they were the guys being talked about in verse 14. They must have thought they were the guys talked about at the end. And and so they must have been thinking, you know what, we're going to rise up, we're going to fulfill this. Israel's going to come into their glory. And instead, their alliance leads to disastrous consequences. Uh, This cements the Syrian uh, presence in Israel uh, with with, uh, Antiochus III and eventually his son. Now, I'll draw your attention to verse 17 through 19 as well, because I think this is another area that's just kind of cool, and it, it demonstrates the accuracy of this prophecy. Verse 17, speaking of Antiochus III, it says, He shall set his face to come with strength, the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of agreement and perform them. And he shall give his daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. One of the things Antiochus III does is he sends his daughter Cleopatra to go marry Ptolemy V. He thinks, she'll go, she'll kind of turn his heart towards me and make me the authority, she'll kind of serve as my spy, this will go really well. Well, Cleopatra kind of becomes fond of Ptolemy V, and instead she starts working against her dad, Antiochus III. Uh, She really likes Egypt, and Egypt seems to really like her. In fact, after Ptolemy V's death, she becomes the ruler of Egypt until her son, Ptolemy VI, is old enough to rule. Now, if you're thinking, whoa, Cleopatra, I know about her. This is not the Cleopatra you're thinking about. Uh, This is Cleopatra I. The famous Cleopatra is Cleopatra VII. But that might tell you how popular she is because her name keeps being used within this dynasty over and over again. She is well-liked by the Egyptians because she works for them. And sure enough, just as Scripture uh, predicted... 
uh, here, this king is thinking, I'll send my daughter to marry, and it's going to be to my advantage, and it is not. It doesn't work to his advantage at all. Okay, verses 18 and 19 then, Antiochus decides he's going to turn his attention then to other places. He starts annexing uh, parts of Asia Minor and the Greek islands, and this doesn't sit well with Rome. With Rome. Uh, the Greeks uh, don't like this. They send um, one of their generals, this guy named Lucius Cornelius Scipio, and he comes and absolutely defeats Antiochus. This is pretty much the end of Antiochus's reign. This also leads to his youngest son, Antiochus IV, being taken to Rome as a captive. So we move on then to this next movement of history. 11, 20 through 28 kind of clue us into what's going to happen next. And they talk about this brief reign of Seleucus IV, Antiochus's older brother, and then Antiochus IV comes to power. Now, let's take a look at what happens here. Verse 20, Then shall arise in his place, that's the person replacing Antiochus III, is one who shall send an extractor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. See, one of the things following the defeat by Rome, Rome uh, imposed really heavy um, tribute on the Syrians. And to pay this tribute, uh, Seleucus had to tax his people very heavily, which made him incredibly unpopular. It's not long before he's poisoned. He dies mysteriously. Um, We have some idea in history who was responsible for it. But this leads to... Antiochus IV being released from Rome, he comes back to basically rule as regent for his young nephew while he's not old enough. Now, guess what his nephew's name is? Antiochus. Go figure. Uh, But his nephew doesn't live very, very long. And while there are other people who should be the rightful king, Antiochus IV, this is Antiochus Epiphanes, ends up taking power. Notice what verse 21 says. It says, "...in his place shall arise a contemptible person." To whom royal majesty has not been given, he shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. So Antiochus IV doesn't have any right to the throne, but he comes in, he takes the throne. And one of the things Antiochus does, he doesn't rule just by sheer might. He uses flattery and manipulation. Uh, One of the things he does is he takes the rightful high priest and replaces him. The rightful high priest in Israel was pro-Egyptian. He replaces him with another guy. And he's doing all these favors to people and basically earning people's allegiance to him, uh, what the text calls small people. And this is how he gains his power. Now, Uh, There's ongoing conflict, verse 24 through 27, continue to detail with incredible accuracy the ongoing conflict between the two kingdoms. Uh, Both kingdoms uh, tend to be uh, ones that are liars and they make agreements with no intentions to keep them, and and history plays this out very accurately, Um, which brings us to the fourth movement then, 11, 29 through 35 kind of details Antiochus' final and failed invasion into Egypt, and it has horrible consequences for Israel. Look at verse 29. It says, At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships from Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. 
He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Now, Antiochus's final campaign into Egypt invading doesn't go exactly as he wanted, but it goes exactly as the Bible predicts. Uh, Rome is tired of all this back and forth fighting between these guys, so they send this Roman consul named Gaius Papilius Linnaeus by boat. This is the ships from Katem. And he comes uh, with all his military, and he basically comes up to Antiochus and says, you need to leave Egypt. And Antiochus is not so sure he wants to obey that. So this is what the Roman consul does. He literally, he draws a a circle in the dirt around Antiochus IV and says, listen, buddy, you make up your mind what you're going to do before you step out of the circle. Either stay here in Egypt and fight me or go home. And Antiochus IV, not wanting to fight Rome and fearing their military, he finally decides, okay, I'm going home. Well, you can imagine Antiochus IV, he is a, well, let's just say he's a very proud man. He literally called himself God incarnate. Um, This whole incident with the circle was incredibly humiliating for him and didn't sit well with him. And upon his return, he focuses his anger on Israel. So he leaves... um, Egypt, defeated, and comes home with a chip on his shoulder. And let's look at verse 31. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Why you see just how bad things were for the Jewish people. In response to some rebellion within the priesthood, Antiochus has a number of Jews slaughters and sells them others as slaves. He allies himself with Hellenized Jews. Those are Jews who wanted to see Greek culture take over Israel. And Antiochus' goal is to completely eradicate Jewish religion and practice and instead establish Greek religion and practice. This means he stopped the daily sacrifice on the altar. He sets up an idolatrous object in the temple on on the altar. Uh, This was probably a meteorite representing Zeus. He rededicates the temple in Zeus's name. And this is what Daniel means by the abomination that causes desolation. The priesthood and the people are forced to partake in Greek religious practices, including the sacrifice of pigs. Uh, Jews are forced to participate in drunken orgies in honor of Bacchus, the god of wine. And those who try to worship God, who practice circumcision and try to still maintain the Sabbath, are killed for doing so. So an incredibly dark time, yet even in all this, God promised through Daniel, that there would be those who would remain faithful to him. Look at verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. Well, history indeed tells us that this prophecy was accurately fulfilled by the Maccabean revolt. So there, are, there were faithful people that, despite all this, remained faithful, and they acted. Now, the final section, then, is very interesting, because it actually shifts. It leaves history as we know it and starts speaking of a future ruler, someone who is like Antiochus IV, someone who will rule without restraint, and this is the Antichrist. Now, it's very interesting, because 36 through 45 Uh, don't really give us an indication that we're switching people here. Um, In fact, in Antiochus' day, people probably were pretty certain that this was talking about Antiochus IV. 
But once Antiochus dies and the rest of this doesn't line up with what happens to him, we start realizing this is another one of those instances of what we've been talking about, prophetic foreshortening. In other words, in one prophecy, uh, part of it speaking of uh, near-term fulfillment, something that would happen soon, and then part of it speaking about something that would happen much later. And this is what's going on. There's nothing actually here that would tell us this is someone else until after we see what happens in history. But notice what it says about this this coming ruler. Verse 36, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of the fortresses instead of these, a god whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. So here's this person who has no regard for the gods. It's possible this god of fortresses simply... Uh, saying that he is um, ultimately devoted to military conquest. For one thing's for certain, he will be set against the God of Israel. Verse 39, he shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. So one of the realities of this Antichrist we see is he's not doing any of this in his own strength. Rather, he has demonic power that is energizing his success. Now, 40 through 45, I won't read, but they detail his downfall. And, and, and what I think is so important here, Revelation gives more detail about this. But we see that this final ruler, even with all the power of Satan behind him, is unable to establish an eternal kingdom. And even he will be subject to God's sovereignty. Now, that's a ton of history. That brings us to the end of the chapter. What do we do with it? Well, there's several things. First of all, I think it's so important for us to remember those topics of prophetic foreshortening and prophetic humility. I already briefly mentioned prophetic foreshortening, that prophecy in the Bible often comes with a near-term thing and a far-term thing. Theologians describe it as if you looked at two mountains lined up and you would think you might be looking at one mountain, you might not realize that there's a valley between the two. And prophecy is often like that. And the reality of prophetic foreshortening is it's impossible to see until after the fact. Prior to Antiochus IV's death, God people had no way of knowing that 36, verse 36 wasn't talking. They had no way of knowing verse 36 was talking about a future ruler. And they would have assumed this was Antiochus IV. Grammatically, the structure doesn't give any clues that we're shifting to somebody. But history tells us that we are. And... Uh, this then reminds us of the need for a prophetic humility. Uh, when it comes to how we interpret unfulfilled prophecy, we need to be very humble. And I don't think these are things that we are to divide over. But why does God use prophetic foreshortening? Why does he give prophecy in this way that's somewhat mysterious? Well, I think it ties into what we see in ancient Israel. Ancient Israel with prophets, uh, there was this kind of neat thing. If you were going to be a prophet in Israel, one of the things you had to do was give a short-term prophecy. And guess what happened to you if that thing didn't come to pass? Well, the people were supposed to stone you. Uh, prophecy is incredibly important and, and guarded. And the same thing happens here. The near fulfillment of prophecy 
shows us, it verifies the reliability of the far-term part of prophecy. So when it comes to Daniel uh, chapter 11, for us, when we see how history has played out in Daniel 11, 2 through 35, and how it accurately predicted everything, it gives us confidence in the reliability of what God has said about the future in Daniel 11, 36 through 45. What we've seen play out, as God has said in the, the past, gives us confidence of what will play out in the future. This brings us to another thing I think is worthwhile talking about. Uh, why, why does God give us prophecy? What's his intent in it? What makes prophecy valuable? Well, one way we can look at prophecy's value is to see it as a secret code that needs to be figured out. And this is a pretty common way of looking at it. Um, and people look at all the clues and say, okay, I think this is that and that is that. And there's a problem with this view, though, and that is this, that while prophecy is certainly speaking of things that will happen, if the value is in figuring out what they refer to, then it really is only a value to that final generation that has enough information to get everything right and to see how it plays out. Yet, if all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training of righteousness, then we have a conviction that prophecy is valuable for every generation. Therefore, I would argue that the value in prophecy is for us to not see it as a secret code to be solved, but to use it as a lens to understand the world that we live in. Let me, let me use an example from Revelation to unpack this. Uh, Revelation speaks about the mark of a beast. And certainly, this is something that captures a lot of people's imagination and attention. Uh, generations of Christians have wondered, what is the mark of the beast? And in my own lifetime, I've heard all sorts of interpretations of this and suggestions. Growing up in the 80s, I heard people say it was going to be barcodes and barcode scanners. And then I heard it was going to be credit cards. And then eventually, it was the internet and then computer chips. And now I'm even hearing that it might be a uh, immunization card or a tracking app. But, but here's the thing that I think is important. The secret code view of prophecy says the main value for me in this prophecy God gave about the mark of the beast is for me to figure out exactly what is the mark of the beast. And the problem with that is that for all the previous generations of the Christians who couldn't figure out, that prophecy didn't have much value. And I think that there's something important here that it might be interesting to us to speculate, but speculation has limited value. However, a prophetic lens view says that this is something that will happen in the future. People will willingly take on the mark of the beast, and the value to me is learning from their example to gain wisdom for my own life. Uh, Revelation, for instance, the mark of the beast is a perversion of God's command in Deuteronomy 6.8. He told Israel to bind God's word on their hand and to let them tie it as a symbol on their forehead. Uh, now, in Deuteronomy, some people did take this literally, and they actually walked around with Scripture on their forehead. But I think God's uh, intention here was after the heart. He was after their allegiance. In other words, the way that they lived their lives, the way that their, their thoughts were directed, the way their actions played out, should demonstrate loyalty to God. In Revelation, we see that there will be people who do the exact opposite of this. Through their actions and their thoughts, they're going to show loyalty to the beast. And then this gives me a lens to look through and evaluate to whom do my actions demonstrate allegiance? Am I living as one who has God's command written on my hand and on my forehead? 
Or am I living as one who has the mark of the beast written on my hand and my forehead? I'm going to put it this way. I might be, let's say I'm a businessman. And I might say I'm a Christian, but if I'm partaking in unethical business practices or I'm using my power and position uh, in an abusive way, then regardless of what I say I am, the reality is I'm living in a way that shows allegiance to the beast, not to Christ. You see, when we look at prophecy as a lens, it tells us about an unseen reality in the world. Now, will there be an ultimate fulfillment of the Antichrist? Yes. But in every generation, there are little Antichrists, and prophecy gives us a lens through which we can understand them. Will there be an ultimate fulfillment of Babylon? Yes. But in every generation, there are Babylons, and prophecy gives me a lens through which I can understand them. Will there ultimately be the final wars and famines and pestilence? Absolutely. But prophecy gives me a lens through which I can understand current wars and pestilence and famines. And here's the thing. I want to encourage you to think of prophecy as a lens, not a secret code, because God's purpose in giving us the big picture is to allow every generation to understand how they ought to live. And so I want to encourage us today to use Daniel 11 as a lens to look through. And here's some ways that we could use Daniel 11 as a lens, okay? First of all, we see that there is true truth. Daniel 11 helps us see that. In verse 2, the angel says to Daniel, Now I will show you the truth. In our culture, we live in a culture that's becoming more and more relativistic, where there is no moral foundation anymore. And people just say, you know, what's true for you, what's true for me, whatever. Truth doesn't exist. And, and here we have prophecy saying, no, there is truth. And I'm going to prove it by showing that this prophecy is going to come true. It reminds us in a relativistic world that truth exists. It also reminds us that there is true evil. Part of our relativistic culture is to say, you know, every conflict is just a matter of, you know, miscommunication, misunderstanding. We just need to get together and talk with more people. And certainly there is a time that we do need to get together and talk and, and listen more. But the reality is this true evil exists. And there are, are world leaders who are working for the forces of evil. Our world says, you know, the only reason there's sin and crime is because people are disadvantaged. And certainly we do need to take care of areas of disadvantage. But if disadvantage only had to do, or if sin only had to do with disadvantage, we wouldn't see crime and sin among the rich or the well-educated, would we? And yet we do. Daniel 11 helps us see true evil exists. And finally, we see that, yes, there is a spiritual world, just like we saw last week. There is a spiritual world behind all this. There is a spiritual reality. Now, at the beginning of the sermon, I talked about how there are scholars today who say, this can't possibly be true because it's too accurate. You know why they're saying that? Because they have a commitment to a materialistic worldview that says the supernatural cannot exist. A few years ago, we did a sermon series looking at apologetics, and we looked at the, uh, the resurrection. And if you look at the historical facts that all scholars agree upon, the only thing that explains the historical facts is that the resurrection actually happened. But there's all sorts of scholars out there who come up with naturalistic explanations that make no sense, but... They do that because they're committed to only a naturalistic explanation. We see this in the scientific community today as well. 
During that same sermon series, I read this quote from Richard Lewontin, who's one of the USA's leading evolutionary biologists. He's written many of the books that are used in schools today on evolutionary biology. And he said this, listen to these words. He says, we take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations. No matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated, moreover, that materialism is an absolute for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, we have already decided that the supernatural doesn't exist. Therefore, all of our interpretations, we have to make sure it's naturalistic and materialistic, no matter how counterintuitive it is. It doesn't actually sound like the scientific method to me, because you've already determined the outcome. Now, it's very easy to look at these things and say, these are just problems for somebody else. But the reality is, we live in a culture that's relativistic, that's materialistic, that's naturalistic, and it influences the way we think. Last week, Matt talked about it's very easy for us to have a functionally materialistic worldview. That is, we can look at the world through a post-enlightenment lens and basically act like, you know, the only thing out there are natural causes, natural effects. And the reality is that I can say I believe in God, but I can live my life very much in a way that's like a naturalist. And that's where reading Daniel 11 is a corrective lens for us because it comes in and it says, no, remember, there is a, a spiritual world. And when you're aware of that, then you have to start asking, who am I showing allegiance to? It's very helpful for us. I'm going to skip this next one on your study notes just for the sake of time. But I want to see two other things that Daniel 11 shows us as we look through it as a lens. First of all, God wins. My job is not to fulfill prophecy or prevent it. Rather, I'm able to live with wisdom knowing that God has a purpose for me. Just as in verse 32 and 33, there are people in horrible circumstances that were able to stay true to God and live with wisdom. The same is true for us. If we undergo persecution, it may not be the final persecution. If we are persecuted by an antichrist, it may not be the final antichrist. And yet, we still have this lens through which to look for that we understand what's going on in our life. And we can live with the conviction that says, ultimately, God wins. God has a purpose for me. And ultimately, I will answer to God, not to a human king. It's incredibly important. I think the final thing that we need to see is that God is sovereign. He's in control of history. And this is perhaps the greatest thing that we learn as we look through the lens of Daniel 11. God's in control of history. What God says will happen. Now, this creates an interesting conundrum for us. If God has determined history, we might start wondering, does anything I do matter? In fact, we might start wondering if we even are able to make any real choices, or are we just on a set of rails moving into the future as God has determined? And I want to take just a moment and, and deal with this question. 
I think that's one of the difficult questions in today's text, moving to that respond to God's word section. If God is sovereign over history, do my actions matter? And here's what the Bible says. Yes, to both. And I think there's wisdom in embracing the mystery of the Bible when things don't quite seem to make sense to us. Is it possible that me as a finite human being can't quite grasp the full dimension of this universe and of God? The things that might seem contradictory, but when I take Scripture at face value, I need to hold these things in tension. You see, the Bible clearly talks about God's sovereignty over history and even the human will. The Bible's very clear on this. And yet the Bible also clearly talks about the fact that our decisions matter and that we're held accountable for what we decide. So how do these play together? And you know what? I don't know. But I think there's wisdom in, in holding on to God's sovereignty and also living with the reality that my decisions do matter. When I don't hold these things in tension, either I turn God into a little God who doesn't know what tomorrow holds, or I end up thinking of myself as a robot who doesn't need to put any effort into life. And both are errors. So let me, because I know this, we can have a tendency to get stuck on these things, let me simply offer a suggestion of a do not do this and a do this, okay? First of all, do not overestimate yourself. I know that God's sovereignty can be uncomfortable because we don't like the idea of someone's will superseding our own. We don't like the idea of not being in control, but please don't overestimate yourself in the power of your will. If left to your will, you would not choose God. I commend to you Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, which speaks of us as being dead in our sins, slaves, and, and basically just stuck obeying the powers of this world. And yet, what does Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 say? It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Let me ask you this. Who has to act first when it comes to salvation? Do you choose? You want God first, or does God have to do something in your heart? And I would say this. When it comes to a sinful heart, a heart that's dead, spiritually dead, for me to even want God requires a work of God. I think it's interesting, as we look at Daniel 11, we've seen very, uh, a number of instances of these very arrogant rulers who are living according to their will. And what does this look like? Well, I'll read a few of the verses. Verse 3, Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion, and do as he wills. Verse 16, but he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. Verse 28, and he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. Verse 36, speaking of the Antichrist, and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. The human heart, when living according to its will, is always set against God. And you see, the reality of the human will is all these kings were doing exactly what they wanted while also doing exactly what God had ordained. So that's the do not. Let me give you a do this, okay, to conclude our sermon. Do embrace the encouragement found in God's sovereignty. If you consider the words of Ephesians 1, 3 through, I'll read to about 5, 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. You know, as we think about who God is and we find encouragement in his sovereignty, several things. First of all, remember that God in his infinite wisdom, knowing everything about you, if you are in Christ, God shows you knowing everything about you, including all your flaws. The beautiful thing about that is it means that God will never discover something about you that causes him to change his mind about you. He won't be like, oh, I didn't know that about you. I guess I have to think about this again. That won't happen. There's incredible freedom and sureness that's available in knowing this about God. Second, because God knows everything, we might wonder, well, why even pray? What's there to tell God? And Scripture says, because God knows everything, there's nothing that you cannot tell him. Are you having doubts? These are okay to bring before God. Are you angry because of something that God has allowed? This is okay to share with God. You, as a child of God, can boldly approach God because he already knows it. And three, because God has chosen some from every nation, uh, he has already promised that there will be every tongue, tribe, nation, and people within the kingdom, then we can approach that great commission he gave us to make disciples of the whole world with confidence and enthusiasm. It's interesting because sometimes people say, believing in the sovereignty of God kills missions. Like, if there's elect, why even go do it? But the reality is that When we look at the history of missions, those who were the most bold, who went to the darkest places, were people who were assured of God's sovereignty. Why? Because if God has already chosen some, I can go to the darkest place, maybe with the most uh, hard-headed people, and know that God will be victorious. So here's my concluding thought. The fact that God is in control, that he is in control, doesn't mean that there's no point in me trying. Rather, it, it means that God has given me dignity in being part of what he's doing. This is a whole part of being the image of God. We're God's representatives in creation, and God has chosen to work through us. That's tremendous dignity. And so, my friends, Daniel 11 gives us a lens to view the world through, a lens that ensures us in a world that seems out of control, uh, that God is in control. A lens that allows us to rest in God and continue to serve him and and live with wisdom regardless of circumstances. And I hope you use this lens because it's an incredible gift to you. I invite you to stand and let's pray as we head out from here this morning. Let me pray for us. God, we are again so thankful for this day to open your word and God, certainly a very difficult passage to look at, a very long passage. But God, we are thankful because in it we see your sovereign hand. In it we see a corrective lens through which we need to look. And God, I would pray that you would do the work that's needed in us, that if we are viewing the world through materialistic lenses, if we're viewing the world in a naturalistic way, God, that you would correct us and help us to see that, that you are at work and that we can have confidence in you. God, of course, this is something that we can't do on our own strength and we need your help in it. So I would pray for this congregation, for those who are both here, those who are watching on the live stream, God, that you would do this work in their lives this week. God, be with this congregation. Give them words that are are winsome and wise to speak to others. 
Cause them to, to love others in a way that people see you. And so, Lord, I pray this in the name of Jesus and through the Spirit. Amen.